0: I'm Adrian Sykes, and welcome to Did You Know, the podcast dedicated to telling the stories of the executives of colour who have led the way in the UK music business. Today, we're in conversation with Nick Eschefuller, partner of one of the UK's leading media and entertainment law firms, and one of the industry's most prominent and respected lawyers. We talk about his pursuit of two careers simultaneously, educating the next generation, and why creating and making music is still an essential part of his life.
1: I used to see them, the two things I do, as very opposing things. You rap and you're a lawyer, that, that's crazy, that doesn't make sense, it doesn't go together. It does, it goes together really well.
0: As with all our guests, we like to ask them why they chose the music industry. Here's what Nick had to say when we asked him
1: i have a passion for music i love listening to music and i love writing music i came from a background as a kid getting really into performing arts i used to love drama classes and i used to love english literature classes and got heavily into rap music in particular as a teenager and that was my gateway into other forms of music because hip-hop music is always influenced by so many other styles of music. So I have, first and foremost, a passion for music. And then why the music business? Well, as well as having that passion for music, i would always wanted to be a lawyer. So whenever people asked me, what job are you going to do when you grow up? That was the only one that kind of made sense for me somehow, which is fortunate because as the son of a very strict Nigerian Ebo father, I, I had a limited set of choices anyway.
0: We all know what those, choices, what those choices are, right?
1: Doctor, and I don't want any blood and guts, so it wasn't going to be that. <laughs> Architect, I can't draw, so that's out. Engineer, and I, I don't even know what an engineer is, so it was never going to be that. Ran down the list, and then there was lawyer, which was all about words, and that's what I'm into. So that made sense to me. So always wanted to be a lawyer. And I've always loved music. So it it made sense for me for those to converge and to try and find a space where I can um, combine those interests.
0: And what is incredible is when we hear your story as we go through is that those two worlds absolutely did converge. It'd be really nice to know what the young Nick was like growing up. What was his passion? What was he listening to? What were you up to?
1: I grew up in kind of... Quite leafy part of North London, very middle class area, quite peaceful. And I had a very privileged upbringing in many ways. I went to really good private schools, which my father worked really hard to have me at. And then I went to boarding school. I went to Eton, which is um, one of the most well-known schools, a very unusual school. And I had a, a you know a really a really sophisticated education, but also a range of quite unusual and difficult experiences. I'm of mixed heritage, half English, half Igbo, Nigerian, and there were very few people who were of that kind of background in any of my schooling. So I've always felt a little bit of an outsider and many people like me of mixed heritage often feel a sense of that more generally in life anyway. So you asked what I was like as a kid, and in some respects I'm still like this now, (laughs) <laughs> slight, there's a slight awkwardness, slight slight outsider uh, complex that I've had. But that's that's kind of manifested itself through this effort to always try and make connections with people. So actually, despite describing myself as a bit of an outsider, when I think about it, the circles that I move in, there are many of them. And I have you know good relationships with people from all sorts of different walks of life, which is one of the real blessings I've had in my life.
0: I found a quote from you that said, I think being mixed gives you a nuanced and sophisticated perspective, which is a superpower and a real blessing in my life. Do you still feel that now? Was that something you felt when you were at Eton? I've grown into that understanding and to that outlook.
1: There are times in my life, you know, earlier in my life, when I didn't quite see it that way. I perhaps didn't have a full and sophisticated view on it. It's just I am how I am and my life was how it was and I didn't really have perspective. But certainly as I've grown and matured, that is my outlook. I guess I've grew up always being conscious of difference, difference between myself and my, each of my parents, you know, difference between myself and some of the rest of my social group and whatever else that awareness of difference makes you raise questions. You start to question things. You see someone express a certain view or look at things in a certain way. And then you think about how other people look at things as well. And and it's become natural to me to try and look at things from multiple angles. And funnily enough, that is a huge part of my job as a lawyer to look at things from different perspectives, to understand the perspective of the other party that I might be negotiating a deal with, for example. And that that's become just part of the way I look at life. And I do credit some of that to the way I've grown up with my mixed heritage. It's an influence on that.
0: And at school, I mean, obviously going to Eton, there's a certain, as you say, the establishment school. There's always going to be a certain sense of conformity required, I would imagine, within those surroundings and within what's expected of you. How does that play out for the mixed race kid who is pretty much the other, um, with not many of himself being reflected back at him? How do you deal with that in those circumstances? It was difficult.
1: But one of the things that I think was my coping mechanism with some of the challenges there Was to try and excel, you know, just I'm a grafter, you know, really kind of worked hard at stuff. So I had to try and do well in my studies, you know, because I was very conscious of the lengths that my family had gone to, to have me in these schools and and of the scale of opportunity that I was being afforded. So I wasn't going to blow it, you know, I was going to make the most of it. But that was also a way of getting fully involved in school life. Um, and then also on a social level, I tried to embrace the challenge and try and find a way to connect with people and find a way to bridge. Even though I felt that I was from a very different background to a lot of other people, there's common ground between all of us in some ways. And so I just tried to find ways to make friendships, be be friendly, be engaging, be approachable and be, try and be open-minded. And so I've got you know, friends who are aristocrats and I've got friends who are you know very different it's 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 become a real blessing in life
0: that world was a world that you were embracing at the same time you were embracing your love of hip-hop culture and rap music so what were those artists that were really kind of exciting you
1: the first rap record that i heard was actually way before i was a teenager at eton it was um, when i was a kid and i got a frosties pack which had a (laughs) flexi disc of The Magic Number, I think. Either The Magic Number or it was I Know by De La Soul. Mm. And I was like, wow, this is this is incredible. What's this? I, I inherited music from my sisters. They would always hand me a tape of something that they bought and they showed me De La Soul and we used to listen to it together and we would repeat back all the skits in, in between the tracks and, you know, just loved it. And then when I was a teenager, one of the first rap albums I really got into was um, Snoop, Doggy Style, to The, to the Chronic and all of the G-Funk stuff, because that was really the era of that. Um, When I was about 14, I went to the Reading Festival, my sister took me there, and I saw Ice Cube, Gravediggers, Gangstar. At this point, I became kind of obsessed with rap. And in many ways, there I was in Eton, around, you know, not just middle class, upper class, people somewhat disconnected from parts of my heritage and for me i think in that strange space tuning into all of the rap radio shows listening to max and dave on kiss and to Westwood and to 279 and and list- and taping every single show and obsessively getting into the music was some way of reconnecting to part of my black identity through the music as well as connecting with family and everything whenever i was back at home so I think it always meant something more to me, even if I didn't quite realise that at the time. At the time, I was just like, I love this. This sounds great. This is the coolest thing I've
0: ever heard. One of the things that I really want to explore is, I mean, your love for the art form is absolutely real. I mean, it's more than just a fan because we want to explore your entry into the business. But, you know, so you've, you finish school, you go to uni.
1: One of the best law faculties in the country. And I, it was important for me to be in London because by that time, from listening to the music, I'd then been trying to find a way to make music and I would write raps and go to open mic nights and I made friendships with various other people who had similar interests and it was becoming a bigger and bigger part of my life and while I was at uni I was um, trying to find ways to make my first recordings and you know really get into the whole thing.
0: Let's talk about one of the two alter egos, right? I'll let you tell us about your first rap alter ego and how that journey for you took off and, and what it meant to you. And I think it's really important that people hear that because your story, Nick, is utterly unique.
1: I had, I had um, a bunch of friends who were just slightly older than me um, because I would gravitate towards people that were into hip hop as well. And there was like one or two other people at, at the school who, who were really into that as well. And there's a whole group of friends of mine um, from a different school, actually, who, who were just a couple of years older. So I was always the younger one. So Young Gun became the name that I used. I would go to open mic nights. It took me a while to pluck up the courage to step up at them, especially because, to be honest, at that time, the kind of underground hip-hop events in London were moody and edgy. It was very grassroots and rough and ready. And I was this kind of goofy, posh kid from boarding school with people from a really different walk of life without being laughed out of the room. And again, the the, the solution for me was to try and be good. And I got to the point where I felt, well, they're not going to say that I can't rap well because I'm doing this to, to a good standard. So they might not like me, or what they think I might represent, or they might whatever, just not, not warm to me from... For, on, on that level, but they can't tell me I'm not good. I had a couple of battles and things and didn't get much into that, but every one I did do, I won.
0: I mean, I've got to say, if uh, anybody wants to go and check out Young Girl online, on which I did because I hadn't seen you do your thing before we sat down for this, man, you could spit some bars. You're good.
1: The lyrical stuff really appealed to me. So I always wanted to be, I guess, in a way, a rapper's rapper. Lyrics, patterns, flows, multiple layers of meaning you know concepts all of this stuff
0: i think it'd be really nice for those out there thinking about going on a, on that journey to hear about how hard the grind is because you know i know from reading your background story that you put in some hard yards it it was never easy you were trying to some in some cases to do two things at the same time being a lawyer winning in that transition period as well as still out there as an artist so Give us some kind of indication of what it's what it was like in those early days for you trying to kind of get your career off the ground the things you had to do.
1: First started writing stuff and creating stuff when I was at at boarding school, high expectations of me there to be, you know, straight A student and everything, a lot of pressure. And then I did my first releases and when I was a student, did you know the odd feature on different people's tracks or like a one-off release. My first album came out when I was at law school. The second album came out when I was a trainee lawyer in a city law firm. And so I've always been pursuing both paths at once. And in terms of making music as a career and how hard it was, I never really looked at it as a career. Because I mentioned that list of jobs that I was (laughs)
0: earmarked for. Rapper was not on the list. Yeah, but was Rapper not on the list because your dad didn't put it on the list or you didn't know that that was something you could do? It's a bit of both. I mean, when I looked at it, I remember
1: thinking at the time, there weren't really many rappers from the UK who were um, reaching a level of kind of commercial success and et cetera that, that, that would make it a more viable career for me than becoming a lawyer, you know? Um, so I never really looked at it that way. And also, hand on heart, I I got into it because of the love of the culture and of the art form and to this day it's the same thing really I do it because I like it I do it because I love I I can't not do it it's just something I gravitate towards I wasn't really in some ways wasn't consciously building a career but the more I did it and the more prominence I got the more I started to view it as a a career and treat it more seriously. And I think one of the simple things that I did to get into, to get the career as an artist going was to just try and be everywhere. So every hip hop event that was happening, I would always attend and, you know, network with people. I didn't really realize I was, what I was doing was networking, but I just wanted to be part of that world and that scene. So I'd always be there. I'd speak to people. And then I would just follow up with people who were like-minded who I could maybe do, songs with it was an effort to try and find a way to actually create proper tracks and record and who's got a studio and who can who knows someone that make makes beats and you know I, I was blessed the very first person i ever met who was a producer was a guy called harry love and he's one of the best producers in in uk hip-hop he produced a classic track called murder by klashnikov and he's the first person i ever met that made beats and they said you should meet this guy he makes really good beats and i heard them and i was like this literally sounds as, as, as good as the the Pete Rock and Premiere and Q-Tip stuff that I've been hearing, you know, listening to for many years. So I I met great people and he would introduce me to others as well. And it just all sprung from there. And it, it was a matter of things spread by word of mouth and personal connections. And getting my name out there was something you had to do on the spot directly by performing in front of people. Pre YouTube, pre any kind of social network, the way that you got heard then was was much more direct. We would hang out at record shops and stand outside them and rap. People would put on a beat and there'd be a cipher with different rappers. or Someone would beatbox and we'd all rap together. And I don't see that so much these days, but that was a big part of it back then.
0: Was there ever a point where it could have gone either way, lawyer or rapper? Did was there ever a point we thought? you know what, I love law, but you know what, I just love being on the mic even more and that's what I'm going to do?
1: Yeah, so I was, I was a trainee at what was in many ways like the top media law, law firm at the time, in a city law firm, but we did a lot of media uh, industry work. And to get that training contract, you know, I'd had to really work hard. And it's very hard to get a training contract at a, at a really good firm like that. But partway through the training contract, I was offered a support slot on a tour. Um, and by this point I had a booking agent, I'd had some records out I Had my first album out, actually, and I'd been working on my second one and, um, I had, a, a formed a kind of long, what, what has been a long-term brotherhood and musical partnership with DJ, Mr. Thing, who one of the, one of the best DJs you will ever get a chance to hear. If you've never heard him, go and check him out. He's an absolutely phenomenal mm-hmm. DJ, but we would took, we would do shows all over the place. We were touring around, but it was always one off shows. But then we were offered a, a, a tour and I got back to my agent and said the thing is I can only get a certain amount of days off work so could I maybe do these dates on the tour and then maybe not those dates and then join for this and that and she was like doesn't really work like that and when I when I couldn't do that that was a real moment for me and I remember thinking oh okay I've hit a bump and I've hit a, a, a fork in the road I guess where it feels like one or the other but then a few people I've met, kind of mental figures creatively. One of them, her name's Eska, and she's a phenomenal singer and writer. I was kind of struggling with this feeling that I had to sort of stop one or the other. And in particular, I was thinking I knew which way it was going. I was going to continue with my career in law and I was going to have to drop my creative pursuits. And I was feeling very um, crestfallen about that. And she said, what her attitude was different. She was like, what a blessing that you can pursue two things and you can do both. It's amazing that you can do that. And wow, what a rich life you're going to have to be doing both these things. And so I just started looking at it in a more positive way and thought, well, okay, I may not be able to do that tour, et cetera, but let me just still try and keep doing what I do. And I've continued that to this day, not always as active as I'd like to be with being a creative, but right now I've got no complaints. I've nearly finished my what is it? My fourth album, and I've got um, some labels I've been talking to, getting lining up to get it released. So we're gonna we're gonna get that out probably next year.
0: One thing I'm really curious about is what did Dad say when you when you were out there kind of rapping? Because I know what my mum would have said. So he he is not an
1: easy person to impress. I mean, I've had quite a lot of achievements in my life. I'm not bragging or anything, but I've you know I've achieved a lot of things I've set out to achieve. And he's always been supportive and very, you know, very supportive in certain ways. But there's a there's this part of the drive that he's instilled in me, which is great. Well done. Now what's next? OK, you've done this. And um, where, do where do you go from there? Next, you need to be, you know, it needs to be bigger and better. and move. So hard to sort of ever reach that point where it's like, wow, you did it congratulations, you've yeah. you know, well done, there it is, it's done. Obviously, there's a sense of frustration sometimes at that, <laughs> but I really understand that that's partly why I'm driven and have this the sort of strength that I do, and, and, and I'm always grateful for that. So I remember him not being sort of bowled over, but there was a time when I brought my family to Made a Veil, I was doing a, a, a session at Made a Veil for the for the, for the BBC, doing this live session, we brought a bunch of musicians together to kind of do Live versions of some of my songs, and that was the first time my parents saw me perform. Um, and then another time was—I don't think my dad came to the other one, but it was at, at the jazz cafe. I had a—I had you know my an album launch show at the jazz cafe, and they have been proud, um, and it's a—it's a lovely feeling, you know.
0: What's really interesting as well, Nick, is that—and I think it's something that's been lost. A lot of young kids did this back in the day, and I was one of them, but maybe not so much now. Is that there was a real sense of having that career or something in your back pocket to to kind of fall back on. As someone who's been there and has kind of trod that path, what would you say to... Those that are kind of starting out on their journey now, trying to find a job in the music business, trying to find a career as a musician, artist, producer, whatever. What would your be suggestion to, to them?
1: You alluded to something just now where he talks about having something in your back pocket. You know, it's almost like have a, having a plan B, having another. And that was the way it was looked at it in in the era when I was starting to build my career. It was always, oh, well, you need something else as a backup plan. Interestingly these days people think about the portfolio career and the idea that it's not necessarily a backup plan you can have more than one plan and you can have more than one career you can have more than one pursuit and you can do them together side by side and in particular if they're complementary so for me uh to give an example you know one of my closest friends who was my manager in in the early days when i was first building my career as an artist is someone i still work with closely to this day and he's gone on to become a very prominent and very successful manager and now i'm the lawyer for his artists <laughs> you know and we work yeah. together in a you know we worked together before when i was the artist now i'm the lawyer the overlap between those worlds it's an opportunity and it's a blessing and it it's it's reached a point where you know people i know from from one one pursuit are very relevant for what I do in, in other areas. There's a bit more harmony in my life as a result of that. I used to see them, the two things I do, as very opposing things and just completely different. What well, many people do, like you rap and you're a lawyer, that that's crazy, that doesn't make sense, it doesn't go together. It does, it goes together really well.
0: <laughs> so at what point did you kind of put down the mic and pick up the papers and the pen full-time. That moment you talked about not being able to go on the tour. At that point, what happens for for Nick Ezzie for then?
1: I never really put the mic fully down. It was always just kind of, I had to put things to the back you know and just back burner and you know not not pursue it as actively but you know when I was trying to get my training contract and then when I was when I was qualifying and finishing my training contract and trying to qualify into the area that I wanted to in my law firm these and then other stages in the career as well there's been a need to be very focused on that and um, you know people talk about law as a career that often requires a lot of hard graft and it's true and there have been times when I've had to do long hours or you know, just do very demanding things, very taxing work or whatever else. Um, And that that takes a lot of your bandwidth up. And there have been times when I've not really felt able to do much else beyond that. And then if you add to that real life, personal life, you know, relationships, and I'm now a father of three, you know, family and and everything else, you can sometimes feel really stretched between these things. And I, I have had a point even relatively recently where I've just felt, there's far too much for me to handle. It's too much on my plate and and the, the music stuff will have to take a back burner. But I mean, I'm j- jumping around in chronology here, but during yeah. the pandemic, when we lost Ty, wonderful rapper, who was also kind of a figurehead in the, the hip hop community and, and sort of the broader black music community, to be honest, there was a bit of a wake up call for me because, you know, he's someone I had a great relationship with and had always wanted to to collaborate with and we've talked about it before and you know just always felt oh yeah we'll we'll do that sometime you know and then when we lost him and may he rest in peace I remember thinking why did I ever wait when he said yeah let's do a tune why didn't I say great let's let's go tomorrow let's go today like let's do it now what what was I waiting for um and then with stuff I've made as well I've made some some stuff that I'm really proud of that then didn't come out and didn't see the light of day because I was kind of waiting for the right scenario, the right opportunity to. And and the thing I've learned more recently is is not to wait and to just act and try and move forward and find ways to just go ahead and do things. So now I create and I I record and, and I'm making this new project and several other projects as well, whilst being as busy as I ever have been as a lawyer and as a father and as a husband and whatever else. So I'm just I, I'm. It's not that I've, I'm not like superhuman and have somehow yeah. <laughs> managed to just do everything. It doesn't really work that way. I've just accepted that I'm never going to be able to do all the things that I'm passionate about to the absolute top level at the same time continually, because that's in, physically impossible. But that doesn't mean I, I have to drop things entirely. I can still, I can still do things and still, still be active in, in all the areas I want to, and it enriches my life.
0: Let's talk about your role now, because you talked about your initial role at the media firm. You've clearly trodden a very successful career path. Obviously, you and I do entwine with an artist, and that was how we came to meet. And it's been an absolute blessing that we've come to be able to talk to each other and work together. You're now a partner over at Simkins. Tell us about your day-to-day and what that entails. I'm also really interested in the kind of advice that you're giving to young artists when they're coming in and looking to sign a deal, because the parameters and the way that people find them, their ways into deals it's clearly changed. Lawyers are a pivotal part of that. So you should talk to that as well if you can.
1: I mean, the day-to-day is varied. So I work in music. Um, I also work in other sectors. You know, one of the pieces of advice I got early in my career as a lawyer was not to be too narrowly focused. So I work a lot in advertising and um, I, I do stuff in the tech space and various other things as well. But music's always been a passion. Um, I'm a commercial contract and IP lawyer and lots of different things across my desk. I do a lot of work for talent, but you know we also work for record companies, publishers, managers, collecting societies, digital platforms, like all sorts, so it's really, really broad. And, and mostly I'm I'm involved in deal-making and, and advice. So I help people, the way I see it is like to help people get deals done, and, and the subject matter of those deals is normally IP rights of one, of one sort or another. Um, one of the things I'd say is don't be scared of the other people in that room that you're walking into who might be seem more experienced or more senior or whatever else. Um, have the courage of your convictions. And in particular, when, you, when you're grappling with deals and contracts and, uh, and some of the technical aspects of the industry, just because you might not have the training and the background, you don't have to be a lawyer to be able to understand the basics of a deal. What is the bargain I'm striking here? What am I giving them and what I'm, what are they giving me in return? Fundamentally, how does that work? And there's loads of layers of technicality and detail around that, but the basics and the core of it are things that everyone who's active in the industry needs to have their head around and know. And I'm all, always surprised by how sometimes I come across people who I'm surprised at how little they grasp the fundamentals in certain scenarios looking at it as like you know this stuff is beyond me there's a lot of artists who are like I don't touch that I don't really focus on the business side of things like that 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 is not the way to go you want to be interested in and focused on the business side of what you what your career involves as well as the creative you know some of the most successful and prominent talent that I've worked with are some of the most shrewd commercial minds that I've worked with as well. They're inquisitive minds. You know, they ask me questions. What's this about? Why is, why is it happening this way? And they're never afraid to ask a question and they don't think they're going to look stupid for asking a question. The most intelligent people ask the questions. There's no such thing as a dumb question. Those are the sorts of things that I I would say people should bear in mind. You really try and get into the technical stuff to the extent that you can try and understand the fundamentals of what you're doing. Read up, and ask questions and don't be phased
0: really want to talk about your work as well in the area of power up because i know that you're not only an advocate but a big supporter of that movement and that community and what it's done when i was doing some background reading where you say jay-z once described the music industry with the lyric domino domino only spot a few blacks the higher i go 100% right. And following on from that, I want to talk about your impressions of the business, of how it's grown and, and where that talent base is from an exact level and an artist level and how that's reflected in those positions of power right now. The music industry, like many
1: industries, and in fact society at large, I suppose, has diversity problems, you know. It's just not really where it needs to be. A lot of power and opportunity sits within quite small circles quite homogenous circles you know in terms of people's background you mentioned power up and for anyone that doesn't know power up is a ambitious program that is combating anti-black racism within the music industry by boosting the careers of black creatives and black professionals the participants in the program get funding and they get access to resources they get training mentorship and They're connected to a network. This is 40 people a year, and and the programme is set up for at least a 10 year period. And so over that period of time, there'll be a whole load of us coming through who are getting this boost. And the idea is that that will shift the dial um, and you'll have far more people of colour in positions of influence within the industry. I applied to this and was selected for, for year one to be a recipient of the support. And then after I was selected, I then brought my firm in to provide support and funding and other forms of support to Power Up, to partner up with them. And so now my my year of being a participant at Power Up has passed, but I'm now still involved in, in that different capacity, helping to support the rest of the community. And it's something that's really meaningful for me. You know, I, I'm always conscious of the opportunities and advantages that I've had and I've benefited from. I remember when I first got into the music space as a lawyer, having come from the city, I then was doing a secondment to a record company, to Warner. And Jez Araquasi, very talented Black mm-hmm. lawyer, was one of the people I was working for there. And he very kindly said, I'm going to introduce you to a couple of other Black lawyers. And he introduced me to Dej Mahoney and also to, to may he rest in peace, Richard Antwi. And the, the three of them took me out for dinner and kind of welcomed me into the business. And it, it was a, a very meaningful thing for me to see black role models in the space that I work in and for them to welcome me in the way they did and, you know, pass on their support and some some of their wisdom and, you know, just keeping an eye out for me. And that continues to this day. And I've always thought, well, I must pay that forward.
0: You should tell people where they can find power up. It's such an amazing thing that I think, I wouldn't say it's a well-kept secret, but not enough people know about it.
1: Absolutely. that I'm all for spreading the word. So... It's an initiative that was launched by the PRS Foundation. So go to the PRS Foundation website and look for Power Up on the PRS Foundation website and you will find the platform and you'll find all the details and all the information about about Power Up. So that's where to go. And spread the word, please, because we we want the highest caliber of applicants and we want to support as many people as possible.
0: When you look around the business now, I mean, obviously, you know, a lawyer of mixed heritage, faces of colour do you see staring back at you in the legal world?
1: More than I used to. You know, I think I mentioned just a moment ago that dinner, when there were four of us, yeah. you know, three other black lawyers <laughs> took me out for dinner. And I felt that that was almost all of the of the black lawyers in the game at the time. And there are much, many more of us now, um, a few more of us now. You know, there are often rooms I'm in, though, in the corporate world, I guess, where there are few people of colour of any sort. And I think that is still an issue. It's something that people have become increasingly conscious of, you know, 2020 after the murder of George Floyd and how that galvanised the Black Lives Matter movement. I feel like there was a real shift for many people in their just basic understanding of the the disparities and the issues and the problems and, and and a sense that stuff has to be done and things need to be addressed. And I think there's sometimes some aspects of that some people feel that they're a bit insincere or it's just kind of going along with what expectations are i always take the view i don't really care if the path to progress is a bit bumpy and imperfect as long as progress is made you know we need to make progress and i don't want to be too idealistic about exactly how it's how it's made
0: let's talk about the next iteration of your music career You've never really put down the mic. You've never really put down the pen. And one of the things that I've learned looking into your background is that you know, music for you is not just about being able to make music. It really is a cathartic exercise as well. Tell us about that passion, the new alter ego, and um, what you're up to in that respect.
1: So these days I go by the name Essa E W S A. That's the nickname that my friends always gave me um, as a teenager. It is catharsis for me, you know, part of the way that I process my thoughts and feelings and with all the ups and downs of life is by putting them into words. And I sometimes, in a way, find it easier to express myself in rhyme and in a, in, in a kind of musical form. It comes to me more readily somehow than it sometimes does even just one-to-one in person, you know. Um, so it's an important therapy for me in some ways to, to, to be able to write. Um, And there are things also that I want to say. So good example in the weeks after George Floyd's murder in that very bewildering, confusing and just upsetting time, you know, all sorts of words we could use. But one of the things I did was write and I wrote a song called Justice, which was from my perspective as someone who's both a lawyer and also a, a rapper. And just speaking about my angle, I guess, on the black experience and reflecting on all of that in the context of what was going on at the time. Um, and just put that up online. And then people responded to it and found it meaningful. And then a label that I'd worked with before approached me and said, well, why don't we do this as a charity record and put it out and um, generate some money for charities that support access to justice. And we raised a decent chunk of money. um, And it, it kind of galvanized me into thinking there's purpose to this. It's not just about personal processing for me. There's also that some of this can be meaningful for other people. And you know, over the years, I've thought about some of the messages I've had from people and some of the, uh, the ways that people have talked about how my music's affected them. I had a message from someone who was on death row, was about to have their life ended, and had been listening to one of my songs and finding it deeply meaningful. They asked me to send them a copy of the full lyrics because actually English was not their first language and they wanted to really understand it. And I just thought, wow, the idea that, you know, as part of someone's last potential days on the planet, you know, one of the things they are focusing on was some stuff I'd written and what meaning it had for them. Uh, You know, I had someone talk to me about, and I don't want to be too morbid with this, but having lost their, their parent um but one of the things that they bonded over was was my music and playing it together and across these two different generations they yes. both were into my music and then that's someone who I've then come to make music with as well so I've realized sometimes that when I do hit the nail on the head with really expressing feelings in a personal and often quite vulnerable way when I really put myself out there it can be more meaningful for people and that can actually be of some worth you know I'm not, I, I don't have some delusion that I'm like gonna shape save the world (laughs) through my raps but if it's meaningful for one person you know a lot of people have told me I, i did a love song called liquid love um after it's kind of like a heartbreak focused story and so many people have told me that that helped them get through a breakup i've had people tell me that they've used some of my songs one of my songs is the first dance at their wedding and all these things that make me realize there's some meaningfulness and some purpose to this beyond just having having fun and a little bit of um, expression for me so this spurs me on so the album that i've been working on is called resonance and it's all about the concept of you know expressing something that resonates for people and how how that can be something meaningful and of course it's a multi-layered thing because resonance is a concept with sound as well so all of that so yeah and it's, it's a collaborative album with a producer called pitch 92 It's an amazingly talented producer and we're doing this together. And yeah.
0: Do you still get excited when you kind of go out and play in front of people? Do you still get excited?
1: I feel as enthusiastic and excited as I I did when I was a teenager first getting into it. You know, and and when I've written something that I feel proud of, I I am really excited by that. (laughs) And if I then perform it for people and see them react to it, that's another real buzz for me uh so I went I did a performance the other day of of some of my new material that definitely hasn't been released yet small audience of of people that kind of are are into this style of stuff and I could see people's faces as as I went through some of the stuff and people came up to me afterwards and told me about lyrics I'd said in that particular song and how how it impacted them and I remember thinking yeah it's working (laughs) and that, that that that's exactly that's why I do it And I get such a fulfillment from that. That's never changed for me. You know, periods of my life when I've been unable to pursue that as much, when I've felt unable to pursue it as much because I've been, the focus has been on other things. I feel a little incomplete. It's important for me, it's part of who I am.
0: Is it harder to put the suit on in the morning after? A great performance the night before how does that affect the, the mindset
1: first of all i don't always wear a suit at work um <laughs> but i sometimes do it depends who, depends which client you know when i'm when i'm stepping into the corporate world i'll be suited and booted and when i'm uh when i'm in the in the music space maybe a little less formal but i totally get what you mean and and, and i know what you mean it is a bit tricky i suppose in some ways shifting mindset but i've reached a stage in my life and career where it's pretty harmonious. I mean, all my colleagues and many people I encounter in the business, they know I have this kind of um, that I that I moonlight as a rapper. And it's, like, it's kind of known. I'm, I'm very. I used to be quite guarded about it, yeah. and now I'm the opposite. I'm now quite quite open about about what I do. So I was presenting. I'm doing a seminar on generative AI and the copyright issues. Um, and what this all means for the industry and speaking to an audience of people from from another sector and talking about how my background making music gives me part of the perspective on this. And, and many of my clients appreciate the fact that I come from background making music because I can understand on some level where they're coming from and what they're going through and the importance of their creative work, what it means to them on a personal level, how vulnerable you feel when you're creative and when you're putting yourself out there. And all these other things, I think it, it helps to, to provide the service that I provide as a lawyer as best as I can because, you know, I get it I understand. So, yeah, I don't really have a difficulty shifting between mindsets now and, and, I, and I'm, I feel very blessed to have reached a stage where I'm just me and, and, and the things I do are, you know, various different things.
0: What would you say if the kids at some point went, you know what, Dad, I think I want to get into the music business. I'm going to be an artist.
1: Okay, I'm going to say what I'd like to say, what I, what I hope <laughs> I'll say if that happens. I'm not, it will. It remains to be seen whether it really plays out this way. I'd want to encourage them and I'd want to give them also some real talk and to tell them about what can be difficult, where the challenges lie, and think, okay, that's great that you want to do this. How are you going to be one of the ones that succeeds? How can we focus on making it work And you know, and make sure that they understand not just the sort of superficial layer that we often see and the kind of public persona that is projected by people, but to make sure they understand also what's going on beneath the surface and the kind of the, the, the sometimes harsh realities of what it's really like. And if they're still into it then, <laughs> and if they haven't been deterred by all of that grim, uh, uh, somber talk, then, um, then they're onto a good thing and, and you know, support them wholeheartedly. And I'll, I'll, I'll say get a good lawyer as well.
0: At least they won't have to pay those exorbitant fees. That's another subject altogether. Let me say this, worth every penny. <laughs> so w- what's next for Nick for Ejafuela? More music
1: releases, more growth in my practice as a lawyer. And I think also I'm keen to develop other aspects of my career. I want to work with, and I am doing this already, working with clients in a slightly different capacity. So not, not always just as a lawyer. So to give an example... I was the I was an associate producer on a BBC radio play recently. Um, Porgy Loves Best. Uh It was a retelling of the of the classic story, but set in contemporary London, in the Black community. I had a a role on that production as a lawyer, but then my role grew beyond that because I helped uh, bring in Swindle, the producer and composer yeah. who, who who did the extraordinary music for that production. I kind of got involved in, in, in a producer capacity, not not a kind of music producer, but more of kind of executive producer type yeah. capacity. And that was very fulfilling for me. And there are other projects of that sort that I'm active in as well. So I feel like this might be another strand to my career, maybe another stage of evolution in my career where there are different hats still that I can wear and other, other ways I can work with people beyond just just being a lawyer.
0: Given where you are right now and what you've been doing, I mean, nothing will surprise me. I mean, and just to finish off I mean, one of the things that you said at the top, which really resonated with me was the fact that the horizon of success was constantly shifting, was constantly moving. Do you ever think there'd be a point where you actually touch that horizon and you can say that you've breasted the tape and made the journey?
1: I don't feel like I ever want to stop. I certainly at the moment feel like there's so many things I want to do and, New things I want to learn and new things I want to do. So I don't know if I ever will, but I have learned also not to always just look forwards and up, but also sometimes to look down and appreciate how far I've come and appreciate what I have in life. Because always pining after the next goal can sometimes actually be unfulfilling because you're failing to appreciate, you're failing to stop and smell the roses, basically. So I've I've been learning to do that a bit better. And actually, during the pandemic, when the world kind of, you know, fell apart in the way that it did, when I was able to still, and I feel very blessed to to say this, and I'm conscious that other people had a very difficult time through that period, but I was fortunate to still be able to support my family, carry on my career, get through that period in, in a stable way, you know, I was lucky to be able to do that, but it wasn't just luck, it was a lot of what I built. And it was one of those, and I didn't realize this at the time, but I've reflected on it in, in the years since and thought, when when the world was really rocked, I was still able to stand up. And that that was, I guess, a, a mark to me of, you know, I've come far enough in, in terms of all these achievements to, to reach a point where things work, you know. And, and to be real, part of that always striving, pushing for things mentality was based on this sense that and I was told this as a a kid you know you're not like your rich white friends who have a safety net around them you can't afford to make mistakes you can't afford to you know get this wrong because there isn't that safety net for you and I guess what I've come to realize is I've become my own safety net to some extent don't get me wrong I've had support and help of others in that journey but I've reached a point where there's a, a certain level of stability you know (laughs) touchwood <laughs> um, which which i think is a real moment for me and so it, it doesn't mean i'm any less ambitious but i would love to be and i'm working to be more appreciative of what i have and the blessings i have
0: you know what i think that's a lesson that we should all learn we could all draw from nick as and i hope i've pronounced that right if i haven't tell me that time Um, i noticed that it was yes and then the kick it was the celebration and the kick to follow but seriously thank you for taking the time and your story is an extraordinary one it's an inspirational one and we really appreciate you taking the time on the did you know podcast to join us. so thank you again my friend
1: it's been fun, and uh, yeah, I'm I'm chuffed to be here.
0: Now listen, we're we're chuffed to have you. Thank you very much I indeed, was a my geek, friend. Geek
1: shy child, geek, highbrow. Took me quite a while just to meet my crowd. Underneath my cloud, beneath my shroud, the voice was soft-spoken, the beats and rhymes loud. If I could rewind somehow, I would speed time down. Dodging bullets is the key I knew to weave right round. But my piece was lined out. The writing's on the wall. When you got the blue jeans, no Levi Strauss. Is that all I'm gonna? leave my
0: child that is some transformers. I'm Adrian Sykes and thanks for listening to Did You Know a Downstreet production our thanks to Nick for sharing his stories and also to my partner in crime and true pioneer Danny D Thanks also to Sean Springer, to our producer Cass Denton, to Ella Ruby on the socials, and to Fager Brothers for our theme music. Big thanks as ever to Dave Roberts and Tim Ingham at MBW for their support. You can now apply to be mentored by the guests of the Digino you know Podcast. Please check out the show's website www.diginoPodcast.com or one word for all the information Did You Know is available wherever you get your podcasts make sure that you subscribe to never miss an episode and if you've enjoyed this podcast please leave us a 5 star review and make sure you look out for our next episode where I'll be talking with manager Mark Williams about his career today. I've been in a rock band, I've been in a metal band, I've done dancehall, I've done disco. It's just the white side of living in the UK versus the Jamaican side of living in the UK. Both of them run right through me. This was Did You Know. Until the next time.